Well, if you turn in your Bibles now, we'll be looking in the study of uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 24. We have been going through the subject of temptation, temptation and the fall of mankind into sin. And we have been looking at the book of Genesis, the very first book in your Bible, chapter 3. It is a true account. It is an account that happened historically. It is not a fictitious story that is made up as some more liberal scholars might advocate. This account of Adam and Eve in the garden after they had taken the fruit from the tree and sinned against God, plunging man into sin. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It reads, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, And you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again this morning. Our Father, once again we come to this very important section of your word that chronicles the fall of mankind into sin, the curse that ensues, and the hope that it encompasses. We pray, Father, that we might have insight, understanding, and that, Father, we might have eyes that would see and understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a teenager, I remembered particularly particular events that would happen in the news. And one of the events that happened when I was a teen 
was the worst nuclear disaster that had ever happened on the face of this earth. There's a place called Chernobyl. I was reminded of it because I had read an excerpt from a book that was entitled Searching for God Knows What by a man named Donald Miller. And here he writes about a picture that he has. And he reads this way. Quote, I have on my desktop a picture of a boy named Sasha. Sasha is one of the children of Chernobyl. A young boy born after the disaster that happened when the core at a nuclear facility in Russia melted and leaked. This little boy, Sasha, is perhaps five years old. And he's gripping with his tiny arm the side of a crib. His other hand is flailing upward towards his ear, his head and shoulders, the only portion of his body not mutated. On the right side of Sasha's chest rises a lump the size of a softball, and his belly grows out disfigured before him as though he were pregnant, a truly painful sight. His legs are oversized and blocky, and he has no knees, only rounded flesh flowing awkwardly to his oversized feet, which produce four toes each, the largest of which is as big as my fist, is distanced from the others and pointing itself in an opposite direction. From the bottom of his stomach protrudes a rounded flow of flesh as though it were a separate limb, stopped in half-growth. Sasha, the article in which I found the picture states, is in constant pain, lives in constant pain. He goes on. As terrible as it is to compare Sasha to ourselves, I have to go there. I have to say that you and I were not supposed to be this way, as creatures in need of somebody outside of ourselves to name us, as creatures incomplete outside the companionship of God, our souls are born distorted. I am convinced of it. I am convinced that Moses was right, that his explanation was greater than Freud's or Maslow's or Pavlov's. I believe without question that none of us are happy in the way we are supposed to be happy. I believe that nobody on this planet is so secure, so confident in their state that they feel the way Adam and Eve felt in the garden before they knew they were naked. I believe we are the wreckage of a war, a kind of Hiroshima, a kind of Mount St. Helens with souls distorted like the children of Chernobyl. As terrible as it is to think about these things, as ugly as it is to face them, I have to see the world this way in order for it to make sense. I have to believe something happened that we are walking around holding our wounds. Unquote. That is the effect that sin has had on the human race. It has been spiritually crippling, spiritually deforming, and having been born into that state, we wouldn't have known it were it not for the scriptures that provide for us a mirror by which we can see our own souls, the spiritual abnormalities, the heinous nature of our own sin and our own heart. For the more we look into the Word of God, the more we see who we truly are. 
And when I read stories like that and I picture this child and I think of many children around the world who have somehow been affected by either war or radiation or some other abuse, I think to myself, how close would I want to be to that child to care for them, to hug them, to give them my care and time. And I think that way because it helps me to think about what God must think when He views us, how much He cares for us, how much He gave to us in the Son that He sent, His Son, so that He could die for us. Because there He looks down from heaven and what does He see? He sees a malformed, deformed, repugnant heart that rebels against God and yet He sees through that. And He loves us and He loves you and I still, despite how we look, how we act. Despite the fact that that accident happened some 24 years ago, the children today still suffer from it. They're now young adults. In the past number of weeks, we've been looking at Genesis 3, of how all of these problems that we have in the world, from war to sickness to disasters to whatever might come in this war as calamity in this earth that is, How it has come because of what happened in Genesis 3. And we've been looking at the process of temptation into sin. Because if we're going to live a life that is a victorious life over the sin that rages in our heart, then we understand or need to understand how Satan functions in his strategy. When Satan possessed that snake or that serpent and he came to Eve, he caused Eve and deceived Eve into questioning God, to questioning the character of God, to questioning the word of God and to believe a lie. And that lie was that if you choose to do something else other than follow the word of God, then you'll be happier. That was the lie. So she looked at that fruit. That fruit on that tree, we saw the pattern. She looked at it. Then she desired it. She took it. And then she shared her sin with Adam. And last week we saw the effects of that sin. Because the effects of that sin spread. As Adam and Eve both took from that fruit, they experienced shame and guilt. They experienced fear and they hid from God. And they lied. And when God confronted them, lastly, they blamed someone else. Adam, first of all, blamed God. It was the woman that you gave me. Blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. And today, as we look into this particular passage, we see God's response. God's response as he curses the serpent, he curses the woman, he curses the man, yet he gives hope. The hope of salvation in the midst of all of the curse that he gives here in verses 14 through 24. So we look first here at the curse on the serpent. For it says the Lord God, the curse on the serpent, verse 14. Because you have done this, he says to the serpent, Cursed are you more than all animals and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. The first curse is on the serpent itself and then in verse 15 on the embodiment of that serpent on Satan. The curse is on the serpent itself. Now you might ask, why in the world did God curse the serpent? He didn't do anything. 
He was an animal that was just walking along. He could have possessed a cow. And a cow could have talked to Eve or whoever it might have been. Whatever it might have been. But the serpent, it says in 3, 1, was craftier than all of the other beasts of the field. And so... Later on, that serpent becomes a representation of Satan, as it is in the book of Revelation 12, 9 and 22. And we see he becomes a symbol, that serpent does, a reminder of deceit, a reminder of deception of Satan's downfall. And so Satan here, he possessed this snake, and you remember who Satan was in Ezekiel chapter 28 or Isaiah chapter 14. When Satan was created, he was created as what? A beautiful angel, a powerful angel who had a high position. And yet, because of his responsibility and because of his power, he grew in pride. And he said, I will, I will, I will become like the most high. God brought him low. God cast him out of heaven along with demons. And they became a visible symbol. The snake did. Of lowliness, of humility. For it says all these words, on your belly you will go. Now some people believe that snakes therefore wasn't, weren't walking, weren't on slithering on their bellies. Some believe that snakes had legs before or had wings or some type of, type of thing because of what it says here. Others see it as figurative language. Either way, it is humiliation that is seen here. The curse on the serpent is representative of Satan. It is humiliation. In fact, the phrase here, and dust you will eat. You see that in your text? It says dust you will eat. doesn't mean that snakes literally eat dust. We know that snakes eat rodents and other animals and they eat bugs, etc., but it reflects defeat. There's a little phrase in the Hebrew that is, that is found. It is called lick the dust. You, you can go and search for this little, little phrase mean lick the dust. And you'll find that it appears a number of times. Like in Micah 7.17. When it says they will lick the dust like a serpent. Speaking of enemies. Like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God they will come in dread. And they will be afraid before you. What does that mean? It means that not only will they be humiliated, Satan is, but they will what? They will be defeated. We have a similar phrase when we talk about football. Somebody bit the dust. It means that they have lost and lost bad. So the curse on the serpent is a perpetual reminder that Satan has been defeated, he has been humiliated, and today, even those that worship Satan, you know there are those who worship and follow Satan? Satan will tell them, the deception is this, the deception that he tells them and they believe is that it is God who is going to fail in the end. It is God who is dying. It is God who is going to lose. And if they want to be in cahoots on the right side of the fence, they had better follow Him because He will be king in the end. Snakes have become a symbol of evil and a reminder of Satan himself. And all around the world where there is worship of Satan, there are symbols of snakes. The second part of the curse is on the embodiment of the serpent or Satan himself. 
And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this is a very important passage. This is a very important verse. Now, it might help you to understand this passage and what it's saying if you think about what Satan must have been thinking. You see, Eve had just fallen. She had just fallen into this deception. And she had left a pure life, a life of pure fellowship with God along with Adam. More likely than not, Satan was likely groveling in his apparent victory because he had caused the downfall of humankind into sin. He had successfully deceived Eve, leading her to doubt God, to doubt God's word, to believe in a lie. And so he thinks perhaps here he has people who've rebelled against God and now their hearts are darkened and perhaps they are part of his side. But God, in his judgment in this particular passage, brings a curse upon Satan such that there is going to be enmity, not an alliance. There's going to be an enmity between his seed and her seed. Ultimately, the offspring of the woman will defeat the offspring of Satan. That's what he says. Most commentators look at this as what they call the proto-evangelium, meaning the first gospel. The first gospel. You want to know where the first gospel message is or the first hope of good news is? It's in verse 15 in this phrase. It's a statement of hope. It tells the serpent that the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, a descendant of the woman will crush the head of Satan, will will bruise him on the head, meaning crush. And there, even though he bruises him on the heel, well, his defeat is certain. And many commentators see that as a picture that God gives the hope that someday the final defeat of Satan will come. And that is through the New Testament. And when we read that, we realize that it's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And most would see and understand that that is a hint to what will happen in the future. The ultimate victory will be found in Christ. But even though he gives that hope, he turns to the woman in verse 16. And we look at the curse on the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So God has cursed the snake. He's cursed the embodiment of the snake, which is Satan, declaring that he will be ultimately defeated. And he turns to the woman and he gives a curse upon her as well. And it falls in two areas. Two areas. One in relationship to her children. The second in relationship to her husband. In general, these are the two closest relationships that most women have. And there will be pain and suffering in both. As all of you who are mothers know, children can be a tremendous blessing as well as a source of heartache and pain because of their nature. And here in this text, the curse is that there will be multiplication of pain in childbirth. First of all, there will be multiplication of pain in childbirth. The literal translation, if you look at the little tiny print in your margin, some of you, it says literally in verse 16, a little margin note, it says your pregnancy, conception. In your pregnancy and conception, there will be pain. Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads causing to be great 
it shall cause or I shall cause to be great your sorrow. It repeats itself. And any time the Hebrew repeats itself. Do you remember when the angels sing in Isaiah 6? They say to God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's not saying that because there are three members of the Trinity. It's saying because in the Hebrew language when it repeats, it magnifies and emphasizes the holiness of God. And here God says there will be pain, pain, great pain in childbirth. And it's repeated for emphasis that the bearing of children will be severe. Taken literally, it means now that you have sinned, you will experience pain in childbirth. Whereas before there was no suffering, whereas before you would have not had any pain in bearing children. When this curse was given, remember that not long ago, the infant mortality rate was much higher than it is. Back in the 18th century, the Queen of England, British Queen Anne, who lived in the 17th to 18th century probably had one of the best medical resources that money could afford. She was pregnant 18 times. It was a common thing for women to be pregnant because the only way that you would not become pregnant was through abstinence. Out of those 18 times that she was pregnant, only five of those pregnancies survived birth. Only five. And out of those five, none of them survived childhood. All 18 died before they could reach adulthood. For centuries, there's been great pain in childbirth and in many parts of the world, even today. Even many parts of the world today, the infant mortality rate is very high. And a woman who becomes pregnant, especially in a country that doesn't have adequate medical care, risks her life. Now, some look at this particular passage and they say, well, hey, look, having a kid bears great pain and that's how you should do it. You shouldn't have epidurals. Epidurals are not to be had because God didn't ordain that. It's his will that you bear pain. And some people advocate that type of idea. You need to bear the pain in childbirth. Well, that's not very bright. Because that would be saying to the man, look in verse 18, thorns and thistles that shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. So you better get rid of that lawnmower and you pick out those weeds with your fingers. The idea of having bearing children with epidurals is a freedom of choice. The idea of bearing children is that there will be pain and children will bring a tremendous blessing or heartache as well. Each child that comes in is born a sinner by nature. And they will sin against God. They'll be disobedient. They'll need discipline. And there's built-in suffering in all of that. So the question is, though, what hope is there then for mothers? What positive hope is there for mothers? Well, if you turn in your Bibles, there's a rather obscure passage that's not often talked about in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. For it talks about mothers and their children in a context that might seem not as likely to be found. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. This passage in verse 12 is often gone to when the issue of women and the church and their role and all of that comes 
But here in verse 13 to 15 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it reads, For it was Adam, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved, or some of your Bibles say saved, through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, what does that mean? In verse 15, women will be saved or preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Does that mean that having a child will save you and you're guaranteed to go to heaven? And the answer is no. This passage doesn't have anything to do with salvation in the salvific sense of the soul. Salvation is not based upon the ability to bear children or the inability to bear children. The word for saved there, sozo, is, or the NAS translates it preserve, connotes the idea really of a full and meaningful life. A full and meaningful life in relationship to children. And when you look at the context of the passage, it is placed in contrast, in the contrast, verse 12, to the role of men as those who are in authority and those teaching in the church. And the idea is that if she lives in faith and purity and godly love with self-restraint, there will be a tremendously full and meaningful life that comes through the context in her sphere of influence. And that is with children or the family or the home. Rather than, in contrast to verse 12 and its function there in the passage, rather than in the role of a spiritual leader in the church. It is not a contrast that is made as an exclusive statement saying that's her only means of fulfillment as if only those who have children will have a fulfilled life. No, but it is in contrast to that. And there's tremendous, you see, opportunity for spiritual impact that comes through mothers. Mothers have tremendous opportunity to impact their children's lives for the glory of God as they take time, the most time more so than fathers, to nurture, to raise them, to teach them, to guide them, to lead them and to lead a successive generation out of the curse of sin. It's like the old saying goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And so when we go back to Genesis 3 here, it is not surprising that the curse here, the curse here is that there is pain in children, but also pain in the relationship with her husband. In other words, the curse is upon the realm that she has greatest influence in and has greatest relationships in, and that is the area of her family. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3, Yet your desire will be for your husband. Yet he will rule over you, or and he will rule over you. You see, before sin entered into the world, God gave Adam, and God gave Eve responsibilities. He gave Adam the charge to take care of the garden. And he created Eve, it says in the scriptures, to be a helper for Adam. But when sin came into the world, there was the curse. And now there would be conflict. So what does that mean? Verse 16. Yet your desire will be for your husband. That word is found one other place in the book of Genesis. And that is in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. Where God says to Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, here was sin crouching at his door. Its desire was to control him, to master him, to have him, to, con- to usurp him, so to speak. That was sin that was crouching at the door. And that is the same sense in which this word is. In other words, the desire for the woman now would be to control or to take the role that was rightfully the husband. Rather than not be the helper, it's sin that would desire to usurp that role that was rightfully his to lead the family. But the verse continues on and it says, and he will rule over you. And that particular word rule, what does it mean? It communicates the idea, that word, of a despotic, an oppressive, a chauvinistic, harsh rule. The curse would include the fact that this man would not be considerate, that he would not be a thoughtful, godly leader, but he would be a domineering, chauvinistic, oppressive type of a leader. And so here, in rather than a harmonious family relationship... You would have a wife now which would desire to control or to overtake the role of the husband. And you would have the husband who in his sin would desire to oppress and to treat inconsiderately his wife. And therein comes conflict in the family because of sin. And so the curse on the serpent was a reminder of Satan's humiliation. And his ultimate defeat and the curse on the woman was that she would have pain in the area and the realm in which she had her closest relationships. And that would be in childbirth and her husband. Now we turn to the curse on the man. The curse on the man in relationship to the realm of his function. Verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. The cause of the curse, you see, is that the man disobeyed God by eating from the tree. Man wasn't deceived. It was intentional. It was premeditated. It was first degree sin against God. And note too, you see, this is not some moral issue. He didn't go and beat Eve up. He didn't steal something. He didn't violate a moral type of an issue. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating. What was wrong was that he directly disobeyed God and plunged mankind into sin. And sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, that's such a small sin, or they've done something that was not so big. The fact is that all sin condemns us and needs to be forgiven. Small sin is just as black as those that are more serious. Although God sees and does have degrees of sin, all sin is black. What is the curse, though? The curse is found in verse 17. Cursed is the ground. And thorns and thistles, verse 18. And he will sweat. The curse of the woman, you see, is in the realm of family relationships. The curse of the man is in the realm of work and toil. Things that he would do as the provider of the family. The primary area for Adam was his responsibility to provide for his family. And now that was no longer going to be easy. The ground was cursed. He was going to work the soil. He would sweat. He would toil each and every day. He had to clear out those new things that would grow called weeds or thorns and such. And he would sweat and labor all of the days of his life. 
It's not that he didn't have to work before. Some people think that. They think that work is a result of the curse. No, he had to tend the garden before. But before it was pleasurable. It was easy. It was not laborious. But now it was. You know, having been to a number of third world countries, that is how most people live. That is how most people live. They live on very little. As day laborers, as farmers, as gatherers, as people who hardly make anything. Statistically, there are about a billion or more people that live on less than one dollar a day. They only make one dollar or less a day. And another billion people that make or earn less than two dollars a day. When I was in India and I watched because I would come back from teaching classes and I would walk by and there was construction going on. And there was this huge pile of dirt, I remember. They were moving that dirt to another part down the street. And I remember what they would do and there was stones and things like that. And there were all of these women that would be day laborers. They didn't have a a bobcat or a front loader or some sort of dump truck or a wheelbarrow even. What they would have, you see, they would all be dressed up in these nice, colorful clothes. And yet they would have to move all of that dirt and some of the gravel over about a block or two away. They would have a little tiny wicker basket about yay big. And they would take that wicker basket and they would fill it up with dirt. They would put it on their head and they would walk down the street and dump it in the pile. Time and time again, all day long in 90 degree weather, humid, hot. And they would be living in the squatters that would just be right next to the pile of dirt. Day laborers. That's hard work. That's hard work. And many people around the world live just like that. I mean, some of you may be thinking about retirement. Maybe you think, oh, it's 10 years away or 20 years away and you think about your retirement. Most people in the world don't have retirement. Frankly speaking, 10 or 20 years away, that's nothing. When most people have to work until the end of their lives, until they can no longer work, it's such a privilege to be able to have that extra time at the end of your life. You think about what Adam must have felt. I don't know, he was perhaps 30 or 40 or 50 or however long. And he says to Eve, Eve, don't worry, this is only going to last another 900 years. There he was, 930 years when he died. Wake up, farm, sweat, go to sleep. Wake up, farm, pull out the weeds, go to sleep. And there Eve was for however many years. Baby after baby after baby after baby populating the earth. So God curses the serpent, you see, and he reminds us through the symbolism of the serpent of Satan's humiliation. And he curses the woman. What does he do in the area of her greatest influence in the family, in the area of man, in his work? Lastly, he gives a hope. He gives us hope. The hope of salvation in verse 20 to 24. For it says, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. Now, at first glance, when you look at this, it seems like a nice epilogue, a nice ending to the story that was here. God let them live. God in his grace let them live. But when you think about it, think what it is here. Here Adam was. He enjoyed the full fellowship of God. There was no sin 
No temptation in his heart. The presence of God, he would talk with God at the end of the day. God would come and look for him. When he had questions, he could ask God whatever he wanted. But then he doubted God. And he questioned God. And he sinned against God. And he knows now that he has sinned, that death awaits him. For God promised him that he would die. And if God so chose to, God could have at that point sent a lightning bolt out and incinerated them both and started all over. But he didn't. He was gracious and kind and he let them live. And here he gives them, he gives them hope, even in the curse. And the first thing we see in Adam's act is that he believed God. He believed God. He believed that God would give them life. And he called his wife's name Eve. And Eve means life because she would be the mother of all the living. She would be the mother of everyone who lived. There wasn't some pre-Adamic race. There wasn't some other tribe that God created that was sitting out there and there. Some people ask, oh, where did, you know, Cain and Abel get their wives or whoever it might have been, you know. Eve was the mother of all the living. Salvation, you see, begins with a belief in God. And secondly, salvation begins with atonement for sin. You notice God clothed them in garments of skin. Where did those skins come from? Those skins came from animals. Animals have skins. And God, here in this very first act of grace, made atonement through the shedding of blood and giving Adam and Eve skins to cover them. For the Bible says... Just as through, there's no, there is no atonement for sin without the shedding of blood in Hebrews 9.22. And God provided that for them. Adam chose his belief. God makes atonement for them. And God gives them security for salvation. Verse 22. Behold, it says, the man will become like one of us. And what does God do? He prevents them from going into the Garden of Eden and taking from the tree of life, verse 22, and that they might eat and live forever. You say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with them going and having eternal life, taking from the tree of life so that they might eat and live forever? That would be eternal life, wouldn't it? That would be eternal life. That would be eternal life in bondage to a body that is affected by sin. That would be eternal life with temptation that would rack the soul. That would be eternal life with with all of the faults that you would have. Having taken and eaten, they would have a body and they would live forever. And God in His grace protected them from harming themselves once again by barring them from the Garden of Eden. Providing for them security in the hope of true freedom from sin. True freedom, when they die, they would have a glorified body, eternal life in heaven with God. So we've been all affected by sin, by Adam's sin, as we conclude this particular chapter. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, Some people object and say, how in the world can that be fair? Why am I condemned because one person thousands of years ago sinned? Why am I I culpable? Why am I responsible? Why am I born that way? 
I didn't do anything. It was Adam who sinned. Why am I destined that way? At first thought, that seems very logical, huh? Seems like it's not fair. But that's how it works in God's economy. In the spiritual realm, sin spreads, has spread through all of humanity because of Adam. But you imagine, however, if God decided to do it our way, in our sense of fairness, that we would need then to live a perfect life without any sin whatsoever in order to gain entrance into heaven. Imagine that. Would you be able to do that? To live a perfect life in order that we might be pure all of our life and gain entrance into heaven. If God had created Adam and Adam was tempted and he sinned, don't we think that we would be so as well? And the beauty of God's plan that Adam sinned and his sin spread to all of humanity, the beauty of God's solution in his gospel is that God provided one sacrifice. And that is through Jesus Christ. And if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, His righteousness could be applied to all who would believe in Him. You don't have to gain your own righteousness. You don't have to work for all of the things that you do in order to gain entrance into heaven. Imagine if that were the case. You'd have to do all of these good things in order to outweigh your bad things. That's not God's economy. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that we can be seen righteous and gain entrance into heaven. Even though it was because of Adam's sin that we are seen as sinners in the sight of God as well. That is part of the grace and the plan of God because Jesus died for us. And in spite of the power of sin and the plans of Satan, God saves and transforms people into the likeness of His own Son. You see, in Uganda, when you go there, you'll see all sorts of people. People who are involved in murder, people who are involved in theft or crime, people who are involved in witchcraft. And you would think to yourself that if you went someplace that had so many different people who had such a sordid background, you would be able to tell them one from another. But by the grace of God, you can't. You can't tell a person who has murdered children from a person who is a shopkeeper who has done nothing. You can't tell a person just by looking at them, a person who has been a witch doctor from a person who is now a Christian. And we served alongside of a number of those people who had had their lives changed even though they had led a life of sin. And we too... By the grace of God, have been saved from sin, the curse of sin. And the hope that we have is that someday, someday when we die, we will have the gift of eternal life. A glorified body. The hope of heaven, of living with God. That is the hope that God provides for us. That is the hope that God gives and the opportunity that He gives to any who would come to Him and place their faith and their trust in Him. Because the curse is limited. The curse is limited. There will be victory in the end. That is the hope that we have. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we close this chapter, we pray, Father, that we might be ever grateful. That although, Father, we live under the curse, that there is hope that there is true freedom, there is true victory. That victory has come 
and your son has crushed the head of the serpent. And that, Father, someday we will have ultimate victory over sin in our own lives as well. But, God, may you empower us and give us strength, Father, to live a victorious Christian life over sin. In Jesus' name, amen.